Hey, welcome to the Church Planting Podcast. I am so excited for you to be able to hear this interview with Trinity Jordan from Launch. We're going to cover topics that relate to your bylaws as well as accountability in your church. As you'll hear, Trinity Jordan comes from a background of being a church planter as well as a lawyer. Now he's running a agency that will help you get your 501c3, set up your bylaws, your governance. Uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So also stay posted for some follow-up commentary after the interview. All right, we've got Trinity Jordan with us. Trinity, you um, were an assistant U.S. state's attorney in the District of Southern Florida recently resigned that position now you call yourself an average lawyer and uh, you run a uh, on the side or, or one of the things you do is you're helping nonprofits with their um, documents bylaws that kind of thing I think that's how we first cross paths and it's, that's called launch um, launchmynonprofit.com is the website that people can go to thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me so um, this podcast is really being listened to by guys that are in the process of planting a church. They're getting close to it. They're thinking about it. So I want to kind of focus our conversation in on that. You yourself have a church planting background and a ministry background. Um, what is what's what what is the uh, did you plant a church at one point? I did. I did. In uh, 2004. My wife and I uh, planted a church just north of Salt Lake City in a town called Layton, Utah, and uh, Elevation Church um, was the name. In fact, that was pre-Elevation Church, North Carolina. I just want to make sure that that's okay. on the record somewhere. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we, we planted the church, uh, two locations, 13 different house churches. Uh, we were there until 2012, um, pastoring and kind of launching different stuff. We helped launch a, a sister kind of church up in Washington, helped launch a church down in Louisiana, and um, then ended up helping to train church planners across the world after that. Wow, that's amazing. So were you also a lawyer at that time? No, so in 2012 when we left actually um, uh, being a pastor and planting is I went to law school, and in the middle of law school, I was still working with church planning and training, and I was working with some other ministries and nonprofits. And it was during that time that I just really started kind of focusing a little bit of endeavors on the nonprofit church world. And it was just because it was my background. And also, too, because when I went out to plant a church, I still remember trying to find a lawyer in Utah that understood what I was trying to do. And that was a little, probably a unique situation for me because I was in Utah and it was a heavily Mormon population, and that's just not something that any lawyer would probably be involved with because the, the Mormon church is just one big entity. Right. So nobody had experience with this. So the people that I did find, it was the costs were just through the roof for me to even use them. Um, and I stumbled through a lot of stuff. I made a lot of mistakes. I had no clue what I was doing. So when I was in law school, one of my mentors was uh, starting a, a group called Urban Island out of Denver uh, um, doing urban church planning. Yeah. And that was really kind of my first, like, hey, listen, I'm in the middle of law. Let me figure this out. Let me focus in on this. I've got resources with professors and and 
let me let me be part of this and so that was in 2012 and so it's just it just evolved and it just turned into oh my goodness this is a lot easier than i ever under, understood this is i just now had the power and the knowledge and could speak the language to make it happen yeah and i've just been trying to you know help other church planners and other nonprofits out since yeah wow that's amazing so when you um so your service that you help guys with they they can pay you a, an affordable rate to help them set up their bylaws, uh, constitution. What does that process look like? Yeah, so we formed Launch Consulting. Um, it was myself. I got a CPA involved. I also got a person that, who was an expert on just licensing, did state licensing for a lot of CPA firms, and so understood licensing and uh, you know state and corporation way better than I did at the time. And this was been now, I think, four years running. We put together this group of coming in and walking a church planner or a nonprofit through the process of, one, incorporate what they do it right. A lot of people just go online, fill out whatever the general form is. And if you do it that way, you're actually going to miss some of the stuff that the IRS requires for your 501c3 declaration letter later on. Uh, so we, we walk a church through that. We actually do all of that for the church. Church never actually has to do that. We do it all. We help put together a conflict of interest policy. We help put together um, the, all the IRS paperwork, the 1023 form. Uh, it's a huge packet you're going to send into the IRS for your 501c3. And we walk through bylaws as well um, yeah. with a church with a church plant. And every, that, I mean, of course, that changes from denomination to denomination or from you know kind of every kind of group church kind of comes from a different church polity kind of background whether it's elder-led congregational uh, and so, so that that right there is probably the the one that's a little bit more um it changes from church to church okay yeah so you're you're working with all different groups you'll help anybody with putting together their their bylaws is that basically the case yeah absolutely i mean we've never had to we've never been asked to work with a group that we've ever disagreed with so that i'm sure one day that'll that'll probably happen but for right now you know uh southern baptist churches assemblies of god calvary we've done stuff for, for hillsong now um we've done stuff for we've even rewritten bylaws for some of the largest churches in the united states mm. uh we've um I'm trying to think of any other group, Vineyard. We've done some stuff for some Vineyard groups, a lot of non-denominational groups, a lot of non-denominational churches, uh, a lot of parachurch ministries or churches that want to start a nonprofit ministry on the side that's not necess necessarily their church, kind of housed differently for liability's sake. We've, we've done all that for them, too. Okay. And the way we did this, and this is not my full-time job. Yeah. This is actually nobody on our team. It's not their full-time job. We, we went out there and tried to test the market to see, like, hey, look, what what if somebody was to go somewhere, how much is this going to cost them? Like, what is what is everybody else charging? You try to figure out, like, you go to a law firm, what it's going to cost. There's some groups that you're going to find online. We just would go out and find them and see what their price points were and figure out, can we beat that price point hmm. uh, for what we're doing? And that's really was our business model was we're going to beat everyone's price point because we think this should have, everyone should have access to this 
and have good quality, uh, really legal advice slash um, consulting advice when it comes to this. Yeah, that's great. Okay, good. So what what do you see for guys that are doing stuff on their own? What are some of the biggest mistakes um, that you see people making as they're filling out as they're filling out their five hundred one c three material, um, creating their bylaws? What do you come across? Uh, the biggest mistake usually is their articles of incorporation. That's the very first thing because that's the first thing everybody does is they they go online to their state, they file to be a nonprofit in their state, and what they don't realize is there's this complexity that the states are the ones who basically say if you're a nonprofit corporation or not. But it's the IRS that comes along and goes, all right, but you match up with what our tax law actually says for us issuing a declaration letter to you, which is really what all everyone's really looking for. Everyone's looking for that letter that says, you know, you're a 501c3 and that you're on their role where somebody can search you on the IRS's uh, exempt uh, corporation's website and your name pops up. And so usually guys mess up in the articles of incorporation phase because the IRS requires certain provisions to be almost verbatim word for word Mm. and if you just go online and just follow what your state says you miss that stuff really? and how are you ever going to know that so that so that's the first thing that's probably usually the one thing that we end up doing when somebody comes to us and they've already filed their articles they come to us and we're like we look at their articles first and we're like all right we're gonna have to amend your articles of incorporation they're like, like why I'm like, well because you don't have this this and this it's gonna get kicked back to us when we bring this into the irs so mm. um that's usually the first mistake. The second mistake is when people are doing this by themselves is reading the, that giant 1023 form is there's so many questions on there and it's almost, it's just a daunting task to look through it and to right. go, Oh my gosh, do I have to come up with an answer for this? What is they, what are they talking about here? And so I found a lot of people end up answering questions that they don't never need to answer and getting into the weeds and stuff that really the IRS doesn't care about because it's not pertinent to them and their their organization. But you would never know that if it's just you're going to do this one time. Hmm. And um, so I think that's kind of the second thing is a lot of people get rejections. I mean, I met a guy in Denver who – he was sitting telling me the story that it took him eight years <laughs> to get his 501c3 uh, declaration letter and how many times it just kept getting rejected and rejected and rejected from the IRS. Wow. And he was doing it himself and he was having volunteers help with it. And nobody had actually done one before. And um, it was all of the mistakes that he was making were in the 1023 form. Hmm. Um, so, okay. yeah, I think those, those are the two biggest mistakes. Okay. So, um, recently in um, kind of the Christian Christianity as a whole, there's been some big name pastors that have had to resign or step down, and that causes for guys that are just starting out and they're forming the polity for their church and they're looking at governance and bylaws um, to to make some um, uh, particular provisions. What um, you know, in, in looking at some of the more recent, I don't know if you want to use the word fiascos or things that have happened with these bigger churches where pastors have had to step down, 
what would you say would be some insights to take away from those things to incorporate into bylaws and church uh, polity, governance, and the like? So here's my takeaway is, I mean, without really naming names, there there are, there's a very large church that I can think of that I know their bylaws because I helped them work with it, and their pastor had a very public um, you know, resignation, and he, then the whole board ends up resigning after all of this stuff comes out. Yeah. Their bylaws were set up appropriately. And what I mean by this is there were safeguards in there. There were mm. – the pastor didn't have too much power. The board didn't have too much power. It was very evenly distributed. There were safeguards for people making the decisions within, within the church. Here's the problem, though. You can – have stuff written down on paper all day long but you have to follow it yeah and that's that's i think what ends up happening for churches is they start cutting the corners so if your bylaws say you do x then you do x you don't go well i know i know you know that guy's a really good friend of mine or we have a really good relationship we Mm -hmm. meet together and we play golf every week um you can have great relationships with the people in your church but you need to follow what your bylaws say. And your bylaws are, are set up sometimes. They, they seem sterile because they're very mechanical, and uh, they don't have the personality and relationships attached to them. They're, but they are set up to make sure that there's no conflict, uh, yeah. conflict of interest, and that um, you're stopping abuses of the system, whether that's a financial abuse that might take place, whether that's a – power and influence abuse that could take place from a board member or the pastor, or if that's, you know, sinful abuse that could take place. Um, and so you want to make sure that you follow these bylaws and you have in place. The, the best thing I think to what I've tried to help pastors understand when they're setting up their, their board um, is, you know, kind of the hot thing that I've seen right now is completely elder run churches getting away from the congregational voting and congregational polity, which that's fine. That's, uh, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't think there's something negative about that. I, but when it comes to your board, it's how do those people end up on your board? And hmm. so how does a pastor then select those individuals and how are they affirmed to the board and how are they kept on the board? How are they removed from the board? I think that when everything is on the pastor, him selecting him or her, you know, however this church is set up, they're selecting the individuals and they're, they're also the ones asking them to resign or removing them. And it's all on the pastor. I think that's when you start to get into some power struggles that you allow sinful behavior or abuses to take place. You don't want to place it all in one spot. And I think, um, I think that that is that's that's kind of the wise way to go. Uh, I, th- I I'll use his name because he's kind of been pretty open and honest about this. You know, Mark Driscoll talked a lot about what took place at their church, yeah, and that their situation, the way they had it set up within their bylaws, and how they actually had all these things in place, but there was a lot of it was too convoluted, and so nobody knew who and was supposed to step up and do what they were supposed to do. So that's the other area is to define out the roles within your board 
Mm. Um, that means to empower people. And uh, so I think that's the other. Now, let's be honest, though. You and I know this because we're in the church planning world. Is that's, a, that's really tough when you've got, like, someone's going out to plan a church and, you know, you're, you've got maybe a handful of people when you're starting off. And, and you know, you, sometimes you're relying on a lot of people that aren't really in the middle of the situation. They're, they're pastors from other organizations or leaders from other organizations that are serving on your board initially. Uh, that's a lot of times what I see is guys are using outside people to help them until they can get up and running and their church is healthy enough to have people within the church right. serving those roles. Uh, so it's, it's really being very deliberate as well. Mm. That'd be the second part of that. Okay. Yeah. Now that's great. Those are great, great comments. The um, let's shift gears a little bit. The um, whole idea of um, uh, the Me Too movement and uh, the Catholic Church uh, sex abuse scandals, all of that stuff has um, also impacted the church. I think the most recent thing was a Houston Chronicle article about over 700 uh, abuse cases within the Southern Baptist Church family uh, of churches or, or um, churches within that convention. Um, and then some, some really strong kind of... Um, uh, answers coming from Southern Baptist uh, leadership. J.D. Greer um, had some strong suggestions. And so um, with that being the case, uh, and myself being a church planter, I, I find that trust and credibility in the culture um, is very low when it comes to being a, le- a, a, a religious leader, or spiritual leader in a community. Um, and none of these scandals help me be a more trusted entity, but I want to be trusted. And so it seems like putting um, accountability measures into place and then being very transparent um, and clear about what those um, accountability measures are um, helps increase the trust level from people, you know, evaluating church, considering coming back to church. Um so uh, speaking to that whole process, what do you think is um, what do you think is important within the church setting for accountability, um, background checks, and all that kind of stuff? Man, I so other than doing all this, uh, you know, registering in your articles of incorporation, helping you with your five hundred one c three. This is probably the second thing that I get calls on the most from pastors is dealing with this kind of stuff. And the sad thing is it's usually when they're calling me it's because something's happened, something's out there. So you're right. We do have a kind of a trust issue. And there's a lot of reasons. I think you kind of identified it or, or hinted at it is we, we have a tendency as Christians to front load relationships with trust. Hmm. When people walk in the doors and they want to serve in ministry with us, we front load uh, trust. And it's kind of, it's become a little bit of our Achilles heel and that will allow people to just work with our children and our youth without taking necessary steps. Everybody should be doing background checks Hmm. and finding a, there's so many different companies out there that offering them for, for, you know, their cheap processes. Usually sometimes you're going to spend 20, $25, $40, $50 per background check, depending on what group, company you're using you need to be doing this and here's the second thing to it you don't just do it once Hmm. you need to be doing those background checks uh they they recommend and of course being a lawyer i'll tell you always on the safe side you should probably do one on everybody that's working in children and youth every six months wow 
um, that's that's what you know any lawyer is going to tell you for your liability case. But you need to be doing it at least once a year mm. uh, because stuff happens within that year that you'll never know about. Yeah, that'll come up. The people are going to hide it from you, and you you want to be able to. This isn't about protecting yourself from a lawsuit later on. This is about stopping something that potentially could happen. And you want to almost show the community around you and the people that come to your church that this is important to you. The safety of children and youth are, are very important. Now, what happens, though, with pastors is usually we run the background checks on all of our leaders, but we don't do it on our, the pastors on the staff. Mm. We don't do it on the actual people that are that are working every day as leaders. Mm. And so your board members, your your men's ministry, women's ministry, any of these people need to have background checks run on them. I just had a church call me because their men's ministry leader had actually been, is on the sex registry list. Doesn't work with youth, doesn't work with children, mm. but somebody in the community ended up coming to the church and worked in the probation office and saw this person standing up on stage wow. doing a an announcement mm. and knew that this person was a registered sex offender. And so mm. this person then went online and started blasting this church saying they these people have registered sex offenders as leaders of this church. Now, I don't think this was appropriate for that person to do. In fact they got reprimanded from from their from their uh, government job. But the, the issue there is nobody had ever done a background check to know at the church one person knew that this person was a registered sex offender wow. and no one did anything and read the background check because they don't work with youth or children and so the problem then in that situation is this is a person that the church has basically established and endorsed as a leader they're, they're on the stage they, they see them as a leader in the church, and they're probably going to be given trust by people in the church that um, kind of, uh, you know, like it, it's almost like they're endorsed with trust. Yeah. And the potential for something to happen exists there. And so you want to just, you want to be almost. I know it's tough to do, and it's, it, you know, what do you do when you have a great person in the church that maybe they've been on a sex registry list for 20 years, and, and but you, you as a pastor see them and the good, and, and you're there with their family and you know all the amazing, great things that God's been doing in their life. You still have to take necessary precautions to protect people, yeah. and also signifying that to others around you. You want to be able to say to people that come to you, like, no, this is what we do. Like, this is very important to us. Hmm. I think that the second part of that is it's really tough for pastors to deal with when something does happen from people within their church to actually call the proper authorities and report it. Uh, a lot of pastors live under this idea that that there's this uh, like clergy parishioner confidentiality yeah. that exists and and. That it's actually just an ignorance of the law. There are a lot of states that even if you're, you're a pastor and somebody comes to you and reports it to, to you that they've done something wrong with a minor, it's a mandatory report state that you are required by law to call the law, the law enforcement authorities. Mm. And a lot, so I think this is where we've gotten ourselves in trouble as, as a Christian, just, you know, group is we try to handle this all internally. 
we try to, you know, we're, we're big on grace. We're, we're big on redemption. We're big on, on seeing, you know, things that have been destroyed, made whole again. And that's really starting to hurt us with people being so scared of being taken advantage of by others in the church when they come to us. So we need to almost, we need to follow the law and uh, the yeah. land that we live in. And we need to report these things. We need to do our due diligence on background checks like crazy for, and that's when you find something that's questionable that you need to pull that person out. And those are hard conversations, but it has to happen. Yeah. Um, I had a, I had a, another church call me and they said, look, we got this person's working in kids ministry. They came to us and said they just got arrested for a drug violation. Um, you know, they, they were arrested. They're not, they're, you know, they're innocent until proven guilty. Hmm. You know, they were throwing all this stuff at me. I was like, no, you pull them out. <laughs> like you, <laughs> you pull them out right now. You put them on the sideline and say, look, I'm going to bench you right now. Yeah. And uh, let's see how this plays itself out. But, um, you know, we love you and we care for you, but you know, we have standards and this is a violation of one of our standards for working with our children and our kids. Yeah. Wow. So now that's really good. So, so I came out of a church with 9,000 people. Now I'm pastoring a church with 40 people. Hopefully we're growing. We are. Um, and, but we're, we're, we're like, you know, uh, I, like I'm the only paid staff person. My wife runs children's ministry and we're just at the point where we're, um, we've got team leaders over, you know, our welcome team and our hospitality team. I've got a group of guys, um, that are in kind of a leadership pipeline process. I've got a couple of interns. So what I'm hearing you say is that everybody that's leading, um, and volunteering, my interns, my leadership pipeline guys, children's ministry, every, all those people should be getting a background check done on them on a yeah, regular basis. Look, of course, I, absolutely. And I know there's probably some people listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, overload. And you also got to remember, like, you're talking from to a lawyer. So I always joke that lawyers are going to give you like, try to tell you about all of the Kevlar vests that you need to put on your body to make sure you don't get shot. Right. Um, you know, we tell you about every precaution that you need to take, but practically speaking, your youth and children are the most important than anybody that is going to be in leadership. Hmm. Uh, whether, whether that is, especially those that, that your church is going to see in leadership. Um, you know, maybe you might have some interns that are never going to work with youth and never going to work with children, and nobody in the church even knows that they have any type of leadership connection. Uh, yeah, you might be able to forego doing some intern or doing some background checks on, on some of them uh, because they're – but on the other side of it too, you know, the lawyer inside of me is like, look, there's stuff – that you also need to worry about like are they going to have access to money do they have access to your finances maybe they've been convicted for embezzlement in the past maybe right. they've got some theft charges on there like there's some stuff you'll never know if you don't do a background check hmm. uh, so i think there is there's the potential across the board that uh you could get hurt in this if you don't do your due diligence and it's totally. i mean i think i'll be honest it's been a while since i physically have been in the process of doing background checks i remember when i left being a pastor in 2012 we were doing background checks on a very regular basis and i think it was costing us around 15 dollars a background check so i know there are services out there that that are economical 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Is there any um, resources out there with with um, the whole Me Too movement? And let's say there's a a, um, a complaint um, not with related to kids, but maybe there's a woman who feels like she's been uh, poorly treated or there's been an unwanted advance made at her. Is there um, a good boilerplate um, process or procedures that you would encourage um, pastors to use and put in place for their churches? You know, I'm going to have to, you asking this question just, you know, re-solidifies to me that I've had it asked a few times. I'm going to have to put something together and try to make it available. I the, the advice I've been giving everybody is that when those those uh, allegations are made that every church takes them serious. Mm. I think the issue becomes, you know, people are worried about believing all of it. And I tried to tell churches, look, you don't have to believe it. You just have to take it serious. And by taking it serious means you go through a process and you, there should be an investigation that's done and it should be an investigation by people that are not involved. So if that allegation is made against a pastor, that pastor is not involved in the investigation. The pastor is kept completely out of the loop, and mm. it should go to your, your board. And the rest of the board then creates an investigation process. If it's about a staff member or a leader, then, um, you know, you, again, the board and the, and the pastor. I would always recommend, too, that it's not one person that is running the investigation. Yeah. So, and if there's any conflict of interest, you know, I know a lot of times a lot of our churches out there, you have family members that serve on boards or there's some type of familiar relationships. Totally. Those people should then recuse themselves from being on the board investigation or being part of that investigation or being part of any decision. And if the, the, the third part I've also recommended to churches is, you know, like one church in particular had an allegation that was made and it kind of implicated several people on the board mm. because of relationships and because of that my recommendation to them was to take the remaining board members do an investigation and then take it to a brother or sister church of theirs and present it to their board and let their board then make the decision based on either the investigation or if they wanted to have their own investigation Smart. done and some Submit yourself to some – try to, as much as you possibly can, a neutral third party mm. um, in those instances. Those are great. Oh, that's really good. Okay. Okay. Well, this is uh, this is a good place to wrap up. Trinity Jordan, again, the website, your website is launchmynonprofit.com. And um, do you, so you work with established churches, but what do you have specifically to offer – um, church plants do you have like a, pr a product or a um, deal that you offer them yeah listen um, we have a we have so on our I'll, I'll offer to all of your listeners out there too if you go to the, the launch my nonprofit.com um, the package deal is about it's $999 what we charge for your articles and corporation your bylaws your conflict of interest policy filing for your 1023 uh, form uh, um, that of course the IRS charges you a $600 fee I mean that you have to take care of on your own but 
all of our services and us going through everything with you. And we start with, you know, guys usually that it's just, hey, I, look, I'm ready to go plant a church. I want to get this open because I want to open a bank account and I want to start bringing in the money. We work with them from the very beginning to when the form comes back from the IRS that says, hey, you're, you're an official 501c3 um, entity. We help them think through even, you know, who's going to be on their board. Wow. You know, what type of people should they have on their board? Um, we give them bylaws of a gazillion different churches, you know, that fit the polity in which they they see themselves. So if you go on there, and I think I'm going to be honest, I don't remember what it is. It might be a 20% discount or a 15% discount. If you type in the word Cubs, because I'm a giant Chicago Cubs fan, so that's yeah. my uh, that's my coupon code. Okay. <laughs> if you type in the word Cubs, you get a discount. Cool. Um, with us and um, you know that way we can help you guys help anybody out I mean we haven't found anybody out there that's doing it cheaper and that, like I said earlier that was kind of our, our motto and our business model was we wanted to just be be a help so we're there to help help church planners out thinking through the bylaws who's on their board and uh, you know kind of what are maybe some best practices moving forward and even their fundraising? That's kind of the, the stuff we've tried to help with. Wow. Okay, great. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for um, sharing this stuff with us. Again, Trinity Jordan, launchmynonprofit.com. The name of the um, organization itself is launched. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. God bless. God bless. Not every American Christian is on the same page about the need for new churches, so we've created a material to help pastors and church leaders talk to their congregations about church planting in a way that's compelling and convicting. We've created a resource called the Church Planting Primer, and the Church Planting Primer can be used as a small group curriculum or it can be used for um, your congregation as a whole, maybe on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or it can be used in other smaller settings, uh, Sunday school classes, or, or even for your leadership team or your missions committee to go through. The Church Planting Primer is four sessions. It starts with the biblical rationale for church planting, it moves on to the need for new churches in North America, and then after that we talk about how churches begin, what are the nuts and bolts of how churches begin in the New Testament and how they begin today. And the last session is about how everyday Christians can be involved in starting new churches. This material is absolutely free. It's video-based, downloadable online for your use, and you can find it all at newcityplanting.org. All right, Clint Clifton, we've got you on the phone. Um, I want to have you speak into some of the same topics that um, I talked to Trinity Jordan with, specifically um, incorporating your church or not incorporating, getting your 501c3 status, setting up governance. Um, I know I've heard you speak to these things in other settings. Um, so we covered that. I want to hear your perspective briefly on that, as well as get your input on um, the, the other part of the conversation, which was... Um, some of these celebrity pastors that are fallen and elders or members um, not really kind of following what's written. Uh, so let's start with um, uh, governance and incorporation, 501c3 status. What are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, I think there's a lot of misinformation on this subject, and that, that creates a ton of confusion. 
I also think that pastors, when they get into church planting, this is not what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about these sorts of things. They're thinking about ministry. They're thinking about life change. They're thinking about preaching. They're thinking about growth. They're thinking about evangelism. They're not thinking about administration. And so um, this sort of creeps up on guys in a way that I think is um, always interesting to watch. So they get to the point where they're starting to name their church and begin, you know, begin setting up shop for we- weekly worship services, bank accounts, and they get hit with this this aspect of how are we going to protect, how are we going to get accounts open, how are we going to administer, and they're just not prepared for it. And a lot of guys I think, tend to just kind of stick their head in the sand mm-hmm. and avoid things that they know. Uh, should be done or they hear should be done, or at least they have some fuzzy ideas probably right for an organization to do. And they, um, they just avoid them altogether. And so I would, I would just really encourage you if you're a church planter, not to stick your head in the sand on this subject, but to, to dig into it. Um, uh, church polity, governing documents, um, administrative policies and procedures only matter when the crap hits the fan. Yeah. So, you know, they seem unnecessary when things are going well, but they seem immediately incredibly necessary as soon as something goes sideways. And and I promise you, if you pastor for more than just a short period of time, um, it will go sideways. Uh, And you will need those policies, procedures, documents to guide you and protect you. Because when nobody knows what to do when something really sideways happens, um, the only thing everyone knows to do is to look to those documents. And uh, and like all of a sudden, it's like the the quiet kid and all of a sudden he's speaking. (laughs) That's that's what happens when things go sideways. Everybody in the room turns and looks at those documents. And so make sure that those things are are done well. Take a period of time in the front side of your church plant uh, to really work on that. And don't don't assume that your intuition or your level of expertise about it is is good. There are organizations out there. like uh, Start Church comes to mind, um, other other organizations that specifically exist to help you with this. Um, maybe even if you're part of a denomination, there's a denominational entity that would help. So really, really encourage you to take a full-on approach to this. Mm. That's really good. Um, can we speak into just the uh, the whole idea of the documents being in place, but then... Um, elder you know church is kind of blowing up getting big you have the celebrity pastor kind of scenario and those documents aren't followed i know that um in private training i've been with you you're you're helping members from like early on even in the membership process be aware of these documents is that what you generally encourage yeah i think it's best especially if you're in a transient area where people move in and out a lot or if you're in a large city I think it's best to make uh, those the high points of those governing documents and those policies and procedures part of your talking points in the on-ramping process. So when you're bringing in members or if you have a first a next steps class or a first impressions class or like a membership class, that there's some quick summary of how this church operates um, included as well as a pointer that would show them how to get more details about that. So that you always have the plausible deniability of saying, well, when you joined the church, we gave you a copy of that and we talked about that. Um, and so, um, like, you know, it's, again, to me, it's just amazing the number of churches 
they get started, they don't do this process well. And then when something goes wrong, they try to make up the rules on the spot. And it just, I mean, it almost ensures that things will go really poorly. Um, So, yeah. Uh, With the time that your credibility is undermined as a leader or in question as a leader is not the time to start instituting policies. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah, totally. That's very true. Okay, great. Well, we appreciate you jumping in, giving those additional emphasis. Um, I think that this will be a really benefit to guys that are just getting started as they're naming their church, filling out their state documents, all that stuff. Um, It is crucial. Thank you. Yeah. One, one thing I don't know, um, I don't know kind of what Trinity would have to say about this, but yeah, um, and certainly go to an expert on this. But I do know that state to state, the incorporation piece is different, and um, and you know, the process of incorporation is a little bit different. But there are organizations, like I mentioned, like Start Church, who make it their business to know that from state to state. Uh, for churches. And so, again, rely on expertise, lean on those who, who do this for a living. Um, sometimes when you're starting up a church, you have a limited budget and you're like, man, I can't spend money on this. Uh, you'd be really, really foolish not to spend some resources on this uh, to make sure that um, you do this right, because it could literally make or break uh, the church. And we, we referenced uh, just a minute ago, celebrity pastors or churches that have things go wrong. Um, and very often uh, those things can go wrong because there's not a mechanism to in those governing documents, in the setup of the church to protect against those things. Um, and so really, really encourage, encourage you to just pay attention to this area. There's nothing more I can say other than uh, say in different ways, pay attention to this area. Um, uh, and everybody who's ever been a part of a church that's kind of fallen apart would say the same thing to mm. you. Um, pay Churches are, are really, really fragile, and sometimes these documents um, really serve to as infrastructure uh, to help hold it together in times of trouble. I love that. Great. Thanks for those comments. Yep. Thanks for tuning in to the Church Planting Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode.